This is our sixth and final part of our series called the Bible. I really do hope you have enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. I've loved preparing it uh, for you, but I do hope you found it helpful. Do drop us a line in the comment, se comment section below and uh, let us know if you liked it. If you didn't, don't comment. Don't <laughs> don't worry. Send us a letter. But I pray it's I pray it's uh, uh, blessed you and encouraged you. And as I've said, my job as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, is to what? Is to equip the saints, equip you for the work of the ministry. And my hope is that through this series now, you're, you're feeling a little more equipped when it comes to all things the Bible. And I, I pray it's helped you get a better understanding of God's statute book, God's divine library, the Word of God. So what have we looked at so far? In part one, we explored the uniqueness of the Bible. In part two, we talked about the inspiration of the Bible, what it means when the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. In part three, we looked at the canon of Scripture, how we got what we call the Bible today. In part four, we talked about the reliability of Scripture. We saw the weight of biblical manuscripts in comparison to other historical documents is overwhelming. And with the discovery, especially with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, that further proved that the Bible we read is indeed the same one that the early church fathers affirmed. In part five, we looked at the inerrancy of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon, actually the great prince of preachers, he said this, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is the religion of Christ's church. God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, acts with a hand that never fails. And I, I, I just say amen to that. When all the facts are known, the Scriptures, as they were penned by the authors, and the original writings and properly interpreted will be shown to be not true and not false in all they affirm. And so with that in mind, I think one natural question that follows on from this is, should we take, should you take, should we take the Bible literally? Should we take everything in the Bible, word for word, literally? And this is a question many young people ask. And to be honest, I think many believers are not actually clear on this or, and are actually rather confused about it, especially in these days where faith and the Bible is under attack from so-called fact-checkers, always ready to pounce. We need to get a clearer understanding of this. And so I I hope what I share with you today will really help you as you seek to read, study, and understand God's Word and then apply it to your life. So should we take the Bible literally? I just want to say that's just the wrong question for a start. The Bible, yes, is God's inspired Word, all of it, every Word. Jesus said, speaking of the Word of God, specifically the law and the prophets, said in Matthew 5 verse 18, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
So the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, is God's holy word. And, 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 and it conveys the exact message. We agree on that. It conveys the exact message God wants us to receive. But Scripture itself is textured with so many and varied literary forms and styles, different human perspectives, emotions, and, and cultures that if... If we don't understand that, if we don't get that, we could easily and unintentionally misunderstand what the Scriptures are saying or actually asking us to do. If I can put it like this, the Bible is true. The Bible is true, but not everything in the Bible is a truth claim. The Bible is true. But not everything in the Bible is a truth claim or actually even needs to be true. There are parts of the Bible, hear me now, there are parts of the Bible that don't need to be true. Now before you throw, I can see you put that foam brick down, just put it, put it down. Before you throw it, let me clarify. You know, when I was younger, back in the day, I um, used to uh, uh, go out at night and whatever, and, and, and this is b b my pre-Christian days, and I can remember one night going to a Paikakariki pub, actually, and as I was in there that, that night, there happened to be a guy, a well-known poet in New Zealand, I, uh, if you know that, get, give a hand wave, but his name was uh, Sam, Sam Hunt. If you remember him, put, him in the, put it in the comments. I, I, I remember him. He had a funny way of uh, talking about it. He was, I guess, one of New Zealand's most famous uh, poets. And so uh, we were there that night and he began to do his uh, thing with everybody. He would travel around New Zealand going from place to place uh, sharing his uh, po poetic uh, genius. And I just want to say, as I listened to Sam Hunt, as I, as I heard what he said, at no point in time did I ever go, is what he's saying factually correct? Is what he is saying true? I mean, I mean, that never came into my mind. And I want to say, why would it? Why would it come into my mind? That is not the purpose of poetry. He, he's, Sam was not trying to present historical facts. He, he wasn't making a truth claim. It doesn't need a fact checker because uh, we've got to understand the poet is not trying to prove something the poet poet is not trying to prove something his poetry was not meant to be a truth statement it, it doesn't in fact it doesn't need to be true now i say this because i want you to understand that 33% or a third of the bible is poetry or poetic. That includes the, the parables, songs, tales, blessings, etc. in the Old and the New Testament. The poetic books of the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations are books, when you think about it, that reflect, reflect on life. That's what they do. They reflect on life, the, the human condition, condition, suffering, love and love making that 
Song of Solomon State, G rating, uh, or probably not G rating. Don't careful. Don't let the kids read it. I don't know. But 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 it focuses on many different aspects of life. And of course, this style is not limited to those books alone. It's sprinkled. The poetic is sprinkled throughout the scriptures, sprinkled throughout the Bible. Uh, and of course, poetry, parables, music, song, they, they may reflect truth. They may reflect a truth, but they tend more often or not to philosophize, muse, meditate over aspects of life. That's the poetic's purpose. The poetic, listen, is not trying to prove something. The purpose is, its purpose is to move something. What does the psalmist want to do? He, he seeks to move you, to move your heart, to move your head, to move your soul and your, your spirit, your emotions towards God, to cause you to pause, reflect, ponder, meditate, silah. So it's important when we study the Bible that we understand that context. It's important when we study the Bible that we understand the literary style of the biblical book that we are reading or the passage we are looking at. And of course, on the other hand, they're saying that about the poetic, on the other, other hand, some stuff has to be true. There's some stuff has to be factual. Uh, of course, the, the Bible and other I guess part of or way the Bible is written is there is a lot of Jewish history. There's a lot of historical writing in the Bible. A lot of the Bible is made up actually of Jewish history. God's dealing with the people of Israel, the prophets he sent, the battles they won and lost. And Look, we've got to be honest, there's some ugly stuff in there. We, we, we've got murder, adultery, rape, brutal violence, idol worship, even child sacrifice, slavery. I mean, some bad stuff went down and the Bible records it all. And of course, the Bible is full of names and full of places. And, and, and because there is so much ancient history recorded in the Bible, warts and all, may I say, that one of the amazing things that we found as we traveled through Israel a couple of years ago was, was finding yourself every day in a historical place, or more than one actually, in a historical place or places that were mentioned in the Bible, you'd get on a bus in the morning and you'd soon be on the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah tackled the prophets of uh, Baal and you'd be overlooking on the, there's the mountain, you're overlooking the valley of Armageddon and by the afternoon you'd jump back on the bus and you'd be in Nazareth and in the evening we're on, uh, on the shores of the Sea of uh, Galilee. It would just blow my mind. I mean, you can go to these actual places that are recorded in the Bible. You can actually go to the valley, uh, the valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath. You can go to that place. And, and I, can I just say this? Jerusalem, it was like 
next level. It's an archaeologist's paradise. I just want to say, it's, you, you want to, you're, if you're an archaeologist, it's like, kind of like your dream job to work in, in Jerusalem. And for me, in Jerusalem, it wasn't actually about the, the big places. It was actually the small places that you would find within the, in the city. Like we, we, we ended up in a place called Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is talked about in the Bible, under, under the ground in Jerusalem, deep down under the ground. We, we walked through it and it was just amazing to think, how did they build this? How did they do this? We came out the other side of that and we were at the Pool of uh, uh, Shalom. And, and, and again, that was a recent discovery. They only just discovered that not too long uh, long ago because sometimes people will say well where's that pool or well, where's that place or where's this place and if it's not there the Bible says it's there and it's not there well again all the time even today just just recently they're finding stuff like the pool of Shalom how is it found some sewage workers they were doing some work and as they dug up they go you got to be careful where you dig in Jerusalem I mean so they were digging it up and they found the pool of Shalom and after that can I say they've found now that the pathway underground where, where you could make your ascent up to the temple mount in Jerusalem so that they're all working on that and making it possible for you to uh follow that path up it just blows my mind the pool of Bethesda uh, um, where, where, where the, the, the paralyzed guys was and the, the angel would stir the waters and he wasn't able to get in and Jesus healed him uh, healed him anyway that, that said in the Bible that it's near the sheep gate but no one could find it for years and years and they're, they're like well it can't be true there's, there's no such place exists we know where the sheep gate is that's still there it's now the lion's gate but, but we couldn't find the pool of Bethesda then they found it and they've dug it all up and it's an archaeology site and so on. And it's just amazing and, and, and how, how the Bible confirms archaeology and archaeology confirms the Bible. And of course, all of that, all of those discoveries as they happen, that gives weight to the truth of the Bible account. They have to be true. Now, there's still lots of places that are not discovered. There's still much mystery out there and places that have still been located, but it is amazing what has been confirmed so far. And so, of course, then, of course, there, there is prophecy in the Bible. There's law, there's statutes, there's commands, there's doctrine and teaching. Of course, we have the Ten Commandments, and those are kind of like truth statements. They're, they're, they're right or wrong. They're, you know, good and bad and do this and don't, um, don't do that. And we need to understand each part of the Bible, how it was written and why it was written and so on. So then you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got the Apostle Paul's teaching in his epistles, you've got Jesus' sermon on, uh, on the mount and, and, and just telling us how we should do life, don't, don't judge, don't this, do, do that, live like this and so on and so forth. And then of course we have very clear truth claims. Statements that are, that, that are describing something as this, this happened. For instance, the, with Easter coming up, the resurrection. The resurrection. The reality is it has to be true. For Christianity to exist, it has to be true. Uh, even Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 through 20. He said, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, is vain and your faith is in vain. I think another version says your faith is useless. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, all of this is absolutely 
useless. So this, this needs and has to be true. And then it goes on to say, if it is true that the dead are not raised, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people, Paul said, to be pitied. He's like, it's a sad state. We're to be pitied. But he says, in fact, in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And of course, we've done sermons on that before, some of the evidence around why we can, uh, uh, can say that it's not just wishful thinking. There is, there is plenty of evidence, plenty of scholars and stuff who have spoken uh, to that. So, so things like the resurrection there and, and, and other things, the, the, those are truth claims. They have to be true. And, and, and there is many of those throughout the Bible. And then, of course, to top it all off, all through the Bible, there is symbolism, metaphors, hyperbole. And we have to figure out in the course of our study, in the course of our reading, which is which. And sometimes it's obvious, let's be honest, and, and, and at least for me, I think it, it should be or, or would be, and it's not always, but... What do I mean? What's hyperbole? What's, what's metaphor? What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, Jesus talks about if, you, uh, if your eye sins, if your eye sins, he's like, pluck it out. Pluck it out. He's like, if you, your hands chop it off. I'm not giving you, because I've got to get through. You can look it up yourself. But he, he talks about plucking out your eye, chopping off your hand. If it sins, better, better that, that gets, you know, you lose your hand and be thrown into... Uh, eternal fire and uh, uh, so on. But we got to understand that's hyperbole, right? Jesus is not, that's just a picture. It's, uh, Jesus is not actually literally saying, <laughs> just so you know, just want to confirm that he is not, he is not literally saying you should do that. But again, in the Bible, in the same Gospels, you see Peter literally cut off the ear of a guard with his sword. So that is something that wasn't hyper, that actually actually happened. And in our reading of the Bible, we need to discern what type of writing is that. Oh, there's other stuff like you say to that mountain, move, and that mountain, boy, you can even throw it into the sea, the scriptures uh, talk about. But again, let's be clear, it's not literally meaning you can speak to, well, you can speak to that, I mean, you can try, uh, you can try, uh, um, but, but it, it, it's really a metaphor, it's really a picture, something to, uh, to help us get an understanding of faith and the, uh, and the power of it, because here's the thing, I have seen mountains move, well, actually, not mountains, sand dunes, I have seen sand dunes out the back of our property with our miracle land deal that you, you know the story that with the motorway we we saw literal sand hills move the ground of this church building shook I think for about two or three years why all of that uh, uh, sand was taken away in a, a in, in a miracle deal where they worked all our land for us the the motorway people and did it all for free that was a mountain moving miracle experience right there you know there's a chap named John Lennox. He's a mathematician and a scientist and he works at Oxford University. He's a brilliant apologist for the Christian faith and he's mostly achieved notoriety for his public debates with well-known famous atheists such as Richard Dawkins and 
uh, Christopher Hitchens. They're on YouTube. They're well worth a, well worth a watch. Uh, but talking about dealing with metaphoric passages in Scripture, here's what he said. He said, the question becomes, when reading that type of thing, moving the mountain, cut off your hand, so on and so forth, uh, the question becomes how we relate Scriptures like that to something real in spite of their obvious metaphorical or poetic flavor. That's the thing. For instance, Jesus is a door, but he's not a literal door, but he is a door. Jesus is a gate, but he's not a literal gate, but he is a gate. He is a, he is a, he is a gate. You, you, and, and we have this ability, and that, that's why it's important when we're reading the Bible, that you connect what is being said to something real that makes sense to you. So it gives you a picture and, and as you hear it, you don't think he's a literal gate. You, you understand the meaning of uh, that. Like when you say the car, I saw the car flying down the road. You, 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 know, you know straight away the car literally wasn't flying. You, you understand what that, what that means. It makes sense. And that's what, as we're walking through uh, a poetical, metaphorical pieces of uh, Scripture, it's getting drawing the, the meaning out of that for, for, uh, for real stuff that's going on in our lives. So the question for us as believers is not, should we take the Bible literally? In fact, the questions, rather than question, the questions should be, is what type of literary style is this? When I'm reading the Bible, is this historical? Is this metaphorical? Is this poetic or prophetic, etc., etc.? Uh, we should be asking questions like, who wrote it? Who was it written to? What's the context? What was the, the context at the time it was written? What was the context of the, 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 the scriptures around the passage that we're reading? What was the culture like at the time? What did the original author intend that his listeners would understand or hear or get from this passage? And again, sometimes we've just got to be honest and say, we don't know. We just don't know. It's a mystery. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, people say, is that literal? Is, that, is Genesis chapter 1 literal? And of course, some say yes, or is it metaphorical? Some say Yes. Was it a literal seven days or was that a symbolic uh, 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 seven days? Is, that, is the earth young or is it old? Is it 6,000 or 6 million? Which one is it? John Lennox, who I mentioned before, has written actually a fantastic book. And I think I've possibly mentioned it before. But he talks about, the, it's around the whole topic of uh, Genesis, Genesis uh, one and he he says this the Bible and, and, and as you read Genesis one allows for both uh, a young earth or an old old earth in the beginning it says he says this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth when was that well we don't know was it six thousand was it six million when was it in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was void. It was dead. But when was it? We 
don't know. But what we do know is that it allows for either. We just know. We don't know when the beginning was. We just know that there was a beginning. And what it, whenever that was, God created it. You know, as we wrap up this series today, I, I heard Frank Turek, who's a well-known apologist for the Christian faith, tell this story a little while back. He's someone who speaks to thousands of people all over uh, the world and debates and so on. And he usually, as he does his lecture or a debate, at the end of that time, he will have a Q and A. And on this particular event, there was this guy there who was really, I guess, argumentative. And really, he was trying to talk with him, but he was just, I don't know, quite, like I say, argumentative, aggressive and so on. And, and, and just whatever he said was pushing back. And so Frank... Uh, paused it for a moment and said, let me just ask you this question. He said, if I could prove to you 100%, without a doubt, I've got all the evidence, it's all here on my laptop, I can show it, I can prove to you without doubt that the Christian faith is true. He's like, would you become a Christian? And the guy answered, no. And it was at that moment, Frank Turek knew that this guy's issue was not a truth problem. It was not a truth problem. It was not a head issue. It was a heart issue. For this man had hardened his heart. He had hardened his heart. Whether Christianity to him was true, was irrelevant. He in his heart was not prepared to follow all the arguments all the proof all the evidence all the scholarly work in the world would not convince a heart that is hardened today i want to say if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts Isaiah 55 verse 7 through 9 says, Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And you may be listening. In fact, I, 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 I feel, I don't know, it could be now, it could be five years from now, but you're, you're, you're listening and God's speaking to your heart right now. Don't harden your heart. Here's what Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. And then it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are over the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, ultimately, let me say this. The Bible is a supernatural book by a supernatural God. And we won't understand it all. His ways, they're higher. His thoughts, they're higher. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're 
they're higher than ours, higher than yours. But as we approach what I'm saying today, as we approach the Word of God, the sacred scriptures, we must do so with a Holy Ghost-infused faith. Remembering that Jesus, our Redeemer, said until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, let us embrace by and in faith the holy scriptures that Jesus Christ, the very word of God in the flesh, let, let, us, uh, let us embrace by faith the holy scriptures which Jesus Christ himself affirmed. And let us submit, let us submit to their divine authority in all matters of life and godliness, my life and my desire to walk with Him. Let God's Word, listen, let God's Word, let the authority of God's Word speak to our marriages, to our behavior, to our conduct, to our habits, to our relationships, to our morality and sexuality, to our finances and feelings. Let, let, let the authority of the Scriptures speak, speak. let the principles of the Bible guide our businesses, our, our workplace, our dreams and ambitions, our desires and discouragements. You know, in His Word it says He has given us His precious and magnificent promises so that through them you and I may become partakers of the divine nature. Let's submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. We don't understand everything in it. We probably never will. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. It's a supernatural book by a supernatural God. And we must receive it with an open and pliable heart. You know, the last verses of the New Testament finish with this. Actually, it's quite a solemn warning, but it says this in Revelation 22, verses 18 through 21. The, John the Revelator says this, I warn everyone, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. These are the last verses of the Bible, last verses of the New Testament. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues. I'm not trying to wreck your morning. But God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. What's God saying here? He's saying, don't mess with my book. Don't mess with my book. And as we sum up this series, let me just say this. Really, all we're saying is let us not change the Scriptures, but rather let the Scriptures 
change us. Let the scriptures change you. All today, if you've heard his voice, don't harden your heart. I would encourage you, submit to his authority in your life. In, in your life. Give your life even today, even now, this very Sunday, to Christ and let him change you. Let his word change you. You might say, how do I do that? It's just by the Bible talks about in Revelation that he knocks on the door of our heart. He's knocking on your door today. Open it and let him come in. Let him rule. Let him rule on the throne of your heart, on the throne of your life. I want to tell you, Christ changed my life many years ago. If He can do it for me, I was a mess, a drug addict, lost. But if He can do it for me, I know He can do it for you too. Give your life to Christ today. Before we go, let me pronounce a blessing over you and over your family. A blessing again from the Word of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you shalom, peace. Amen. God bless.